0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This is Zach Groff and I'm here with Dr. Joseph Piper for another segment on faith and practice. Dr. is going to answer some of your questions that you've been submitting over recent months and we're excited to tackle them together. But before we do, Dr. P, would you open us with a word of prayer? I will, Zach. Thank
1: you. Our Father in heaven, we bless you because you alone are God, there is none other. We thank you for Christ, your Son, our Savior, who is the treasure chest of all wisdom, for the Spirit of Christ who indwells us and enables us to understand your word and to get understanding and wisdom. So we cast ourselves on you this day as we discuss these various theological and practical questions. And ask that the Spirit, indeed, would be our mentor, and that you would be honored and glorified, and keep us
0: from error. We ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. P. Our first question comes from Jonathan Beatty of St. Cloud, Florida, and Jonathan asks us, What counsel would you give to a recently ordained ruling elder? What resources, books, audio lectures, etc., would you recommend for ruling elders?
1: Thank you, Jonathan, I'm, I love the office of ruling elder. I think it's one of the most beautiful and uh, glorious parts of our Presbyterian form of government. I have actually, even though I'm a minister, have functioned in a couple of churches, uh, helping ruling elders, doing so now even, and I, I revel in that privilege. And also thank you for your uh, zeal to recognize you've been trained but you want to continue to grow. The books, there's some older books on pastoral theology uh, that would be a very useful um, Bonner, uh, Bridges on the Christian Ministry. Jay Adams has a three-volume work uh, on shepherding the flock that's very useful. George Scipione has a book. Um, Pastor Whitmer has done a lot of work in the area of uh, shepherding and elder training. We're actually hoping to do something with him here at the seminary in the future to help pastors and elders in that area. So uh, those are some things that are available there is a, a, a book out of the Dutch reform background by uh, a man named uh, De DeCoster on the ruling elder that I found to be very useful, uh, Samuel Miller. And then if you, if you get into some of the uh, collected works, Thornwell and his collected works has some excellent stuff on the office of elder. So I hope that'll get you started. Please feel free Uh, by email. Uh, I realize that for a a podcast, it's a bit more ambiguous, and I'd be glad to give you specific
0: uh, bibliographical references. And did you have any particular words of general advice that you would give to a man that was just recently ordained, or is that... Okay,
1: you're right. That's the first... What counsel would you give? Well... I think we go right to what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, is take heed to yourself. Keep short accounts with God. Uh, Keep short accounts with your wife, your children, uh, for a godly home. Uh, Stay in the word and pray, brother, pray. Pray for uh, your congregation members by name. And if you have been given an assignment of a particular group, uh, as an under-shepherd, pray all the more for them by name and by need as you get to know them. If you have been assigned pastoral oversight for a group in the church, then be faithful in it. If you lack confidence, you tell your pastor and ask him to uh, train you, take you on some visits Uh, to train you. When I trained ruling elders, one of the things after we discussed it in the classroom, we then did role plays and then I took the men on visits and would debrief them after I led the visit and eventually they would lead the visit and I would debrief them and then they would be on their own. If your church doesn't have a visitation program, then you need to go to the pastor and your fellow elders and ask them to uh, begin one. And then Obviously, you've asked for resources. Uh, keep reading. A- after your Bible, read your Confession of Faith. Know it in catechisms, frontwards and backwards. I've got that um, on our website. There's a reader to take you through the confession annually, Confession and Catechisms. And a, a deacon friend, Tim Hopper, has put that on a daily subscription. So you can actually get it to your phone or tablet or computer, uh, the daily reading there as well and then as you have time i know with ruling elders life is full but uh, read a practical book a theological book just keep a, a
0: diversity of, of of reading as well very good thank you dr p and jonathan we will um i think we have that reader electronically like dr pipe has said, up on the website we also have paper form and we'd be happy to send you one Get in touch with you toward that end. And to any of our other listeners, not to make this too much of a commercial, but um, I was just speaking with the registrar earlier today about our plans for this year's Summer Institute. And Dr. Piper is going to be going through over a week um, the sermons of 10 distinguished and um, recognized preachers through history and evaluating them kind of on the on the parameters or guidelines set by R.L. Dabney in Sacred Eloquence. And that class is open to current pastors and ruling elders. Or men interested. And, or men interested in elder training. That would be a great course to take, even if you're not a preacher, right. and you're not called to the preaching ministry, because it will teach you how to listen better and to evaluate sermons better and um, in your function as a protector of God's flock, how to... How to evaluate sermons and preaching?
1: I think it's August thirtieth through July. Uh, excuse me, July thirtieth through August third.
0: Yeah, it ends August fourth. Our fourth is so a Friday.
1: Must be August thirty-first then. Yeah, or July thirty-first. I mean, July thirty-first yeah. to August the fourth.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Our next question comes from Singapore from Haldeng Al Young of Covenant Church and. Uh, he asks, is Abram's attack on Kedorlaomer in Genesis 14 a just war? Does it mean that godly nations are obliged to oppose imperialism with military force if able, especially if other moral atrocities such as massacre and slavery are involved? This is a timely question. Yes, Thank you.
1: Uh, it's very, very timely uh, in terms of what happened last week. Um, as to Abram's attack, he's not a nation he was fulfilling the sixth commandment by defending his family, and so he went out to uh, deliver his nephew. In fact, he made it very clear that he was not involved in any kind of political activity. He would accept no uh, of the none of the spoil from Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, just the. Uh, restoration of the property of his nephew Lot, I mean, his yeah, his nephew Lot, and then the people who went out with him. So it was a military act of defense against an aggressor. It was an immediate aggression, but it's also showing what God was doing in the life of Abram uh, in terms of the land and building him up. Now, in the first place, I don't know that we have any godly nations today, I wish we had some godly nations, but we don't. But let's say that nations that have a more democratic, constitutional, moral base, but again, if a nation's killing 15 million, 59 million babies, um, that's a moral atrocity as well. So, you know, it's a very confusing situation, and you're going to find Christians on both sides of the issue. Uh, should the United States have bombed Syria's airfield because of Syria's use of uh, poisonous gas. I don't know. Um, one part of me thinks that uh, because we, we do have UN treaties that have to do with these types of things, that uh, we should be taking a unilateral action on the basis of such treaties against this is a, a war crime. Uh, so we're in those in those things. I'm not sure we ought to be in them, but we are. So once you're in a treaty, then you've got an obligation to do something according to the treaty as as well. I just know how awful gas is. I've been reading uh, some mystery books around World War I. And the damage that was done when the Germans used gas against the Allied forces is just horrendous. Mm-hmm. So... Um, when when Augustine develops the just war uh, theory, you know part of that was it was a, it was a war of of military defense. It was a war that you were willing to declare a war and had the resources. You went into it in order to win it, and those were, were principles that he developed. Now it's not a war necessarily. To defend the innocent, <laughs> and so um, it's it's something that we should pray and think about. We need to get Christian thinkers uh, involved more in terms. I'm sure they've done a lot of stuff in, in this, and I'm just showing my own uh, my own ignorance. Personally, I have over the years. Been in favor of strong military force in a punitive way, not in terms of declaring a war, but some of the stuff that President Reagan did in the past—that to bomb the airfield where the plane, that, there was video evidence that's where the plane took off, with the um, the things that wouldn't be civilian casualties in that case, things like that. I think it was a thoughtful response. And I think it was probably a needed response, but again, we're not the policemen of the world and that's where others would say then. Uh, But it just seems to me that uh, when there are such atrocities uh, that the more civilized nations, if we can do something without putting um, our own soldiers in harm's way in any real way, that, that seems to me it's a good thing to do.
0: Thanks, Dr. P. And thank you for the question. Again, uh, we received this question months ago, but we're just now addressing it, and uh, in God's providence, that's pretty good timing, all things considered, at least from an American perspective. Um, The next question comes from Terry Carnes, and his question has to do with church discipline for breaking the fourth commandment. He asks, we have often asked candidates for licensure or ordination, how would someone be guilty of breaking the fourth commandment? What does that look like? I'd like to ask Dr. P. a question that goes a little bit further. How should the church discipline those who break the fourth commandment? What would that look like? Do you know of any churches that have done so?
1: Terry, this is a thoughtful and a difficult question. Let me begin with what it would look like if the person is breaking the commandment and recognizing that there are levels of sin. And I'm going to use an an analogy from a Presbyterian perspective of uh, a Calvinistic Baptist coming into a Presbyterian church to help illustrate where I am at this point in my thinking. The person who is deliberately working on the Lord's Day not in a job of necessity, is to be uh, dealt with by the session, uh, informed uh, of of the sin, offered help in terms of making a transition, either through job training, diaconal support, uh, whatever is necessary to get them into uh, another position. If the person uh, is agreeable to that and begins to work with the elders, then I think the elders patiently work with that person and help them through that transition. The I've also have interacted with some people overseas, with people in their churches that are having to work at the markets and stuff on the Lord's Day, and I'm I'm looking at the analogy there. I'll come back to my Baptist analogy. But my analogy there in terms of slaves um, in the New Testament era who didn't have a choice, um, their existence, they were required to do things that would have been against their consciences. And I wonder that I'm I'm not as hard-nosed any longer on somebody that's barely living. And Mm. in the culture they're in, they're at that market on, they're not missing church, they're on the market on Sunday afternoon in order to get food on the table. Uh, I, I think that it's more, the, they're more the analogy of the person who's a slave than they are in terms of somebody that lives uh, in, a, in a more productive economy. Then there will be the person who does recreation on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I think that's a sin, and I would tell them it's a sin. But I take it as a sin of, well, I call it a sin of fallibility. This is where I make the analogy with the Baptist. I think that when a and all our Baptist listeners, you know, I love you, and you know, you, th- and if you're fair, you'll think I'm sinning to baptize my children. So, I think it's a sin not to baptize our children, but I don't think it's a sin that warrants church discipline are breaking off of fellowships. That's the difference in the Presbyterian tradition, as Samuel Miller talked about the liberality of Presbyterianism and the continental reform position. Whereas I've said in the past on the podcast, the continental reform position is a church member must subscribe to every doctrine and listed in their three forms of unity. We require a credible profession of faith, which is uh, the essentials of evangelical, Trinitarian evangelical Christianity but not the distinctives of a reformed soteriology or of covenant membership of children in the church. So I think it's a sin not to believe in these things or to do them, but I am willing with my fellow elders to receive a person like that into the church with their understanding that they're going to be regularly taught in public and private and family visitation uh, where we think their beliefs or practices are wrong at times, we'll give them something to read. Case of Baptist, they must not absent themselves from any um, covenant baptisms, and they may not privately or publicly teach against the position. So in that way, I'm not going to discipline them by keeping them out of the church, mm. but you know, they know our position, we know their position, and we try to grow together. That's what I'm where I am now on... Uh, recreation on the Lord's Day afternoon is that uh, I think it's a sin and people, uh, you know, we will tell them that and try to lovingly and patiently deal with them. They might get upset and discipline themselves and leave the church, but we're not going to put them out. Now, third category is the person who starts missing church because of recreation. So let's say they have a child in a traveling uh, soccer club team and they're missing church a couple times a month to get to other cities for soccer tournaments on the Lord's Day, that person then would be uh, admonished through a series of uh, admonishments and eventually lead to church discipline if they uh, continued to violate the Lord's Day by missing worship. The other issue is the person that skips Sunday evening worship. And I put that person in the category of the person who is doing recreation. Now, if they're skipping it for recreation or for work, that becomes a different issue. But if they're skipping it because they don't think it's important or some have more noble reasons, they think that they should be doing other stuff with their children or whatever, You know, we're going to tell them we think it's a sin. They've taken vows to support the church, to submit to the elders, but we're not going to discipline. So at the end of the day, the person that's going to be disciplined is the one who either refuses to stop a job after a period of time that's violating the Sabbath or who is skipping church for recreational purposes.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. P., what would you include as recreation? Uh, does In particular, I have in mind, does going out on a Sunday afternoon on a particularly pleasant day and either, um, you know, Walk, taking a walk with your children or even <clears throat> kicking a ball around with your son or daughter, um, does that count as recreation on the Sabbath or would that be in, in some other category if it's not organized, regular right. play? In, in my book, I,
1: I approach it in terms of some questions. And the question is, does this activity enable the people involved to keep the Lord's Day holy? So my children are going to need some physical release if they're going to keep the Lord's day holy, particularly when they're young. And so, but I want it to be something that doesn't detract from the purposes of the Lord's day. And that's why I'm not keen on kicking the ball or going to the swimming pool. I'd rather go for a walk and review catechism. We'd play a game with our children we'd look at things that God made and Take turns pointing those things out as we as we walked. Are we talk about God's providence? Children love the stories of what God did in the lives of their parents, and they'll hear them a hundred times and want to hear them again. So we can talk about the things, those kind of stories. So I like it more constructive. I will, uh, particularly the uh, you know in the day, get on the floor and would we'll, we'll have wrestled some with the children just to roll around some and help them get rid of energy. That's very much brief, much more intense. But I think it's up to a family If kicking a ball is the way that you want to help your kids um, but you got you know if they're, if they're avid soccer players, kicking a ball is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know it's just something to get rid of energy, but the closer it can help them keep with the purposes of the day by having some didactic aspect added to it or experimental aspect added to it, the better it is. And then you know there's good uh, uh, Christian videos now and some Christian uh, games that also help our children uh, with with the Lord's day.
0: Great, thanks Dr. P. Um, and thank you for the question, Terry. that is a, that is a difficult issue, especially since in our current uh, cultural climate, either broadly speaking or even specifically in our churches, um the thought that we would discipline anyone for breaking the fourth commandment is is probably viewed as ridiculous. But um but it's important. And if we're gonna live by our convictions and by our confession, then we need to consider that. Our next question comes from regular listener River Labelle, who asked a great question last time on personality tests and their usefulness. This time he's asking about gospel preaching churches that focus on cultural issues. Wow, another Very timely, timely issue. And and this is specifically what he's talking about. I know of a Calvinistic church, I think it's non-denominational, that is running a Bible-based pro-life campaign. When I hear from them, I'm glad for the progress they're making, but I'm conflicted. It seems they're distracted from their primary mission of building up the saints. And I don't know whether it is good to praise a ministry that is seeking a good end with the wrong means. I have in mind a one-on-one conversation with a brother who is asking me to support such a ministry with prayer and with money. As a general principle, can you clarify how we should feel and act toward well-intentioned brothers who may be wayward in their methods? How should I respond? And then, secondly, on the other hand, it seems that unless Christians step up nationwide, perhaps pro-life legislation would never be realized. I think the same could be said about assisted suicide and other similar issues. What place do individual churches and individual Christians have in such battles or efforts?
1: River, you've asked a hugely important uh, question, or two questions, really. We have to distinguish between the mission that Christ has given to his church and how the church prepares Christians to work their faith out in the world. If we make that distinction, then I think we have the clear answer to your question. Mm -hmm. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, paragraph 2, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before, um, under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and their children Is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, (coughs) out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. (coughs) Excuse me, I have a terrible cold. So here we see the distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. The invisible church is merely every elect person, past, present, or future, who is in union with Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Bible mostly speaks about the visible church, which is the visible expression of that relationship, that the individuals have to Christ. And the visible church then is under office bearers and is necessary for salvation ordinarily. Its work then is described in paragraph three. Under this Catholic visible church, and Catholic means universal. Mm -hmm. So when we confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church we're simply talking about the, the universal visible church. <coughs> so every congregation that has the marks of a church are part of the Catholic visible church. Unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given ministry, not your office bearers, oracles, the word of God, <coughs> ordinances, the means of grace. <coughs> For the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life, to the end of the world, and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Now this is the doctrine that the Southern Presbyterians call the spirituality of the church. And the invisible church has the responsibility given to it to use uh, the word and the ordinances through the ministry for these two great purposes. (coughs) Excuse me. The gathering and perfecting of the elect and so our task is spiritual there's a diaconal ministry it's a part of this we won't go into that today but it is not an agent of secular cultural change or as we're seeing today of social justice Mm. that is not the responsibility of the church but the church as it trains its members and does disciple them, will send them out into the world according to their callings and gifts and predilections <clears throat> to serve Christ in vocations and political activity and pro life movement. <clears throat> and so the visible church should not be involved, as you're t- describing it here, in running a Bible based pro life campaign, but should. Equip saints who want to do that to run a bible-based pro-life campaign
0: could the could the session of that church or the board of elders, whatever their particular setup is here, have some kind of supervisory function with a parachurch group made up of individuals like that, or is is their connection what, purely? What
1: I recommend is the session might appoint uh, a committee
0: mm-hmm
1: to oversee it, but that committee would not be directly responsible to the session. That would make it a ministry of the church.
0: So the session appointed a committee, at that point, it would just be helping to get things started?
1: Then they they back out of the way.
0: And then they back out of the way, so that committee functionally becomes something entirely separate from the church.
1: we might talk about Nigeria today, and what we did in Nigeria, as we worked on economic development, was I encouraged the session, you appoint a committee of church members to head up the economic development program. <coughs> it will not be under the elders or the deacons. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, The church members, of course, church are being members. overseen from a spiritual perspective by those men, <coughs> right. the elders anyway. Right. But, um, but the And in that is case, we, not... we've had
1: some discipline problems. We had a man that was hired by the committee to run the farm, and he was irresponsible and mm. probably criminal then he comes under church discipline yeah that's because of how he conducted his business yeah so um that that's how i answer this question so we will see change individual christians uh get involved in in these various uh, cultural areas but again according to their gifts and concerns the church must put nobody on a guilt trip yep so if you're not involved in pro-life you're not a faithful christian no That's Lord and over their conscience. Each Christian needs to be encouraged to serve Christ
0: (coughs) according to time, gifts, resources. Mm -hmm. So if we were to sum up your question or your answer, Dr. P., if I'm understanding you correctly, you would say that churches don't have a formal place in such battle, but individual Christians may, according to their calling. Right. Okay. Very good. And then as individual Christians, of course, they're responsible to, or their elders are responsible for them, I should say. So moving on, we have a very involved question here. Parsing out the fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and this comes from a regular listener. And Doctor P, he just sent me a Google document here, uh, elaborating further on his question. But basically, he is asking. Well, here I'll, I'll read. I'll read. The shorter catechism read the question,
1: thing. then read the elaboration. Yes, please.
0: so uh, the Shorter Catechism uh, asks, what is God? And the answer to that is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And the question from the listener is, how do we correctly parse the sentence? And he, he, he gives a graphic illustration here of that. I'm not going to get into all of that on air. And then he has a follow-up question um, about about it in relationship to the larger catechism. He says, it seems that Westminster Shorter Catechism 4, whichever way we parse the answer, gives us information that its larger counterpart doesn't. And then he goes into that. Are there other things that the shorter catechism teaches, or teach that the larger catechism doesn't? If if so, where and what accounts for the shorter catechism? At least in this instance, teaching things that the larger catechism doesn't. Uh, where the drafters or authors of the larger different from those of the shorter. So we have history here, we have um, grammar, and we have theology, and I have additional information handy if we need it. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> Thank you, regular listener. Um, I don't think there's a lot of parsing that goes on here. We have to remember that God is what we would call in theology a simple being, which means he's indivisible with respect to who he is. And so it's very important to note that every one of God's attributes is part of a whole. The best way you can think about it is a diamond that has many facets, The diamond is made up of the many facets. They illustrate each other, make it beautiful. You may look at one facet and consider it. (coughs) And so that is how the catechism functions. so the parsing takes place between God as a spirit and, and the confession says an absolute spirit. And that gets into his being. Rest of these things are attributes and they are interchangeable or interconnected. So he infinite, eternal, and unchangeable define his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so it's back and forth. He is infinitely true. He is eternally true. He's unchangeably true. He is good, but he's also holy. He is just, but he's also patient. (coughs) And so they all (coughs) are interconnected. There are divisions that people make, say, between the moral attributes of God and what we might call the mental attributes. Uh, I still prefer the very simple distinction between (coughs) incommunicable and communicable. That, with respect to his infinity, eternity, unchangeableness, his omniscience, omnipotence, that these are attributes that God does not share with us. (coughs) The others he does, but in him they're still of a higher degree. So we, we can have wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, but in God they're infinite and eternal and unchangeable, in us they are finite and flawed. Now as to the relationship with larger catechism, I think you've misread it. The actually larger catechism has attributes that are not in the shorter catechism. And the shorter catechism has attributes. This is simply the standards work together. You have to take both the confession of faith, which has two paragraphs. The first one is God with respect to himself, primarily. The second one is God with respect to his creation. In the larger catechism, you've got those two things combined. So God's a spirit in and of himself. That's how he relates to creation. He is independent. It's called the aseity of God. Talks about his being. He's infinite in being. He has glory, blessedness, perfection. That's another word for infinity. All sufficient. You see, those aren't in the Shorter Catechism. So it's not that there's things in the Shorter Catechism that aren't here. It's just there's different emphases uh, in both. They're always to be used in harmony. Unchangeable, incomprehensible. The larger catechism is focusing more on his uh, incommunicable attributes. Everywhere present, almighty, and knowing Mm. all things. See, none of those apply to us. Uh, their gods, and that seems to be more of an emphasis in the larger catechism. Then, <clears throat> we got wise, holy, just, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant goodness and truth, but the word most is added to those, again, to emphasize the absolute nature of them. So, it's not a matter of grammar as much as is that the, the attributes define one another, but there are those that belong to God exclusively, there are those that, as His image bear, that we have. But even they are possessed by God in the idea of most, uh, in a degree far beyond us. So the basic division is His being; He's an absolute Spirit, and then in His attributes, which
0: define this being,
1: characterize it. They're all interconnected.
0: So when the larger Catechism. Doesn't say explicitly that God is eternal and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth Or that God is unchangeable in those same seven attributes There's not a... um, That's not particularly significant It does say he's infinite
1: in being, perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable It's all there, I don't understand
0: Yeah, because eternal, unchangeable would govern all of the other attributes
1: they're all there, yeah. and a larger catechism as well.
0: Yeah. All right. So what's not there? Uh, as what the listener has said is that a uh, larger catechism question seven says that God is eternal and unchangeable, but it doesn't say that God is eternal or unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, oh, and truth.
1: Oh, that's, that's simply a way of, of... setting it, right? Of setting it. Yeah. This does say... God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, perfection. So that is in his being. Mm-hmm. So it's all its just different ways of putting the truth, emphasizing them from different. Mm-hmm. The logic Catechism has things not like in the shorter as well.
0: Yeah. You know? Very good. Well, I hope that addresses the and question. And you can listen
1: to my course, Introduction to Reformed Theology. You can get yep. that online and mm-hmm. uh, about the second. Lecture in that ideal with the doctrine of God.
0: Yes. And again, that's one of those courses that's open um, to those of you who live can locally. Audit it.
1: Well, they can audit, so I'll audit it online.
0: Yeah, you can audit it. Um, I highly recommend it. It is an excellent course and good materials that are put forward there. Moving on, uh, we have a question here from Curtis Horstman of West Plains, Missouri. And Curtis asks about baptism. He says, Is a baptism of a Roman Catholic joining a Reformed or Presbyterian church sufficient to be accepted, or should he or she be rebaptized? What were views of the church at the time of the Reformation? Also, in considering baptism from other denominations or churches that a Reformed or Presbyterian church does not have ecumenical fellowship, what role does evaluating the marks of the church play in a session's consideration of this question? Thank you for the question, Curtis. All right, Curtis. Very good, very broad. <clears throat> in the first place,
1: we never rebaptize anybody. <laughs> so we have to define our terms. Uh, is a baptism, in a Roman Catholic, joined Reformed Presbyterian Church sufficient, or should he or she be rebaptized? <clears throat> Those of us who say they should be baptized say they've not been in any way scripturally or properly baptized. Yes. So, no, none of us believe in rebaptism, <clears throat> But, yes, <clears throat> the position of, I think, all of us here at the seminary and the position of the Southern Presbyterian Church uh, has been, and the PCA, really, although the PCA left at each session, but, the, but the, the principle was that Roman Catholic baptism is not Christian Baptism. And there's a number of reasons for that. One that is missed by many. Oh, let me one other historical note, Curtis. <clears throat> when the Presbyterian Church in America, <clears throat> now let me back up. You asked a historical question.
0: Yes, yeah, about the Reformation.
1: <clears throat> Most of the reformers, not all of them, uh, accepted Roman Catholic baptism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now there were a couple of things going on. In the first place they had much hope that Rome would respond well to the Reformation. And Rome had no solid anti adopted anti-doctrines uh, on grace and justification until the Council of Trent, yes. which was later called the Counter-Reformation. And so as the Protestants were dealing with Rome, they were treating Rome as a church. They were hoping that Rome would repent the second thing is, is that men like Calvin, I think, <clears throat> looked too much in fear at the Anabaptist. The Anabaptist <coughs> rejected infant baptism, and in light of that, the Anabaptists rejected in, uh, Roman Catholic baptism, and Calvin saw them so closely connected that he thought <coughs> that if he rejected Roman Catholic Baptists and he would give fuel to, to the Anabaptists. Calvin was so <coughs> committed to this principle that when he met in, in Acts chapter 19, he met some men <coughs> outside of Ephesus or at Ephesus And he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. (laughs) And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. Now, in all translations... There's a period and a an end quotation mark at that point. That's what Paul said. Then the text. <clears throat> when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So this text has been universally understood that they had John's baptism, which was not Christian baptism. It was a preparatory baptism. And it was in Matthew 28 that the Trinitarian Christian baptism was instituted, and so they had not received baptism in the name of the Lord, only mm-hmm. John's baptism, and so Paul baptized them. But Calvin was so committed to avoiding any type of a uh, quote rebaptism that Calvin actually then says that after what we have has appeared in the quotation mark. And he baptized them was a reference to their first baptism by John, which is very bad, very bad exegesis. Mm. So, it then, after the Reformation, was more of a mixed question. In American Presbyterianism, uh, it came to the General Assembly, and there were only eight votes in favor of Roman Catholic baptism being valid baptism. What year was that? I do not remember. It was before the war between the states. It had to be in the first half of the 19th century, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: probably 1850s, something like that, because Princeton was quite – Princeton then was – the Princetonians were the one that were pushing for accepting Roman Catholic baptism. So there were only eight votes in favor of doing that. The majority of the church – American Presbyterian Church then in the first half of the 19th century uh, said – No, it's not valid baptism. When the church split uh, during the war between the states, the southern church then reaffirmed its position. The northern church then, under the influence of the Princetonians, changed the position and adopted the position that Roman Catholic baptism was an
0: acceptable baptism. So Calvin, though, would say that Roman Catholic baptism was legitimate and should be... Approved of what? What would what would Turden say, having lived in a different era of the Reformation? Do you know? off the not know. Of your head. I, All right. know. I have it behind you. And the reason I ask that is because in Princeton they were generally operating off of Turretin and his systematic, right? But Dabney was as well. Oh, so Dabney I don't was think as that well. that And then in the, the, the South they were using Calvin, but that wouldn't make a difference. No, they used right. mostly
1: Turretin. Thornwell used Calvin as his text, mm-hmm. but Dabney used Turton as well.
0: Okay.
1: Now they used Calvin as well. Um, Now, what's often missed here in this, when the Confession of Faith talks about what is a valid sacrament in chapter 27, paragraph 4, there be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the Lord's Supper, neither of which may be dispensed by any, (coughs) but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That has been completely left out of the discussion. Discussion focuses often around well the confession says that the piety or intention of the person doing the sacrament is does not make it invalid. That's true. But the confession also says he must be lawfully ordained.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what makes someone lawfully I ordained? I don't know
1: anybody that accepts Roman Catholic ordination as lawful.
0: What about a female Methodist minister. Well, can
1: I answer the first question? That's the yeah, next question. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. You, you're getting ahead of all of us. <laughs> um, so that uh, that in itself would disqualify uh, Roman Catholic. We don't accept Roman Catholic by transfer of membership into our churches, or we shouldn't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They have to make a profession of faith. Yeah. This is not saying that everybody in the Roman Catholic Church is un- I think there are converted people in the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. But they've not been properly baptized, and they need to make a profession of faith. Then the second thing is, I think Stabney points out, a thing cannot be the sign and the the reality at the same time. Roman Catholic Church does not have the gospel. It has perverted the gospel, according to Galatians 1. It's anathema. And baptism cannot be the regenerative agent and be the sign of the regenerative agent. So that's another one of the arguments that is being offered so that's why the PCA, my denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, has said that it's better not to accept it. They have left it to each session and what they were to do. When I pastored, I would explain to a convert why I thought they should be baptized, and I would leave it with their conscience at that point. Mm. If, if they... Um, <clears throat> this is particularly those that have come to us who have been members of the church. I say a convert. But in our mission work in Italy, we baptize all converts. Mm-hmm. Now, it gets a lot more difficult, Curtis, with your second part of the question. Now, it's not as narrow as those with who we have an ecumenical fellowship. We don't have ecumenical fellowship with Baptists. Or Lutherans. Uh, or Lutherans or whatever. But there are, if they have the marks of the church, then we accept that baptism. Now, where it gets difficult is we do have apostate churches today. But I, in my local session, do not have the authority to declare a church's baptism invalid. What we need is general assemblies to step up to the plate and say that the American Episcopal Church, the American Methodist Church, the American Presbyterian Church, uh, that these uh, denominations who have denied scripture, who are promoted homosexuality and homosexual ordination in marriage, are, are apostate. Now, remember, we're not saying everybody in that church is, is apostate. There are genuine Christians in those churches, but we're saying we no longer treat them as a church. That means that we no longer will accept them, their members, are their sacraments.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the gray area is, until we do that, and we have a person coming to us who has been baptized by a woman. <clears throat> now, from the point of view of our hermeneutics, she's not lawfully ordained. But she has been ordained according to an evangelical church order. Let's make the case easier. Uh, the Methodist Church has ordained women not as a liberal body, but as a practice Uh, that's been there ever since the uh, 18th century. So, although we wouldn't accept her as a minister at this point, um, we're not trying to get into who in that Methodist church or who in that Baptist church baptized you. Were you baptized by a lawfully ordained person according to that church's order? And that's, that's where I am. But it's long past time. Uh, but unfortunately, the longer it gets past time, the more weak need our denominations are. Mm. It's long past time for us to declare that these uh, denominations are apostate. And that's going to be the only, uh, I think, proper answer to this. At which point, we don't make that retroactive either, though. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe <clears throat> there is a uh, piece on our website called Dearest Ashley." where I deal with some of these questions as as well with respect to infant baptism.
0: Dearest Ashley. Should be on there. I will check. And, um, and lest, lest anybody who's listening in either live or on the recording think that Dr. Pipe is being overly doctrinaire or harsh, particularly toward the mainline denominations, we need to recognize... That as soon as a PCA man walks into a fellowship of PCUSA ministers, there's a stigma. Um, as soon as he announces himself as being in a, in a denomination that takes the Bible as the inerrant, inspired, authoritative, infallible Word of God, and uh, that does not ordain women. Um, well, we
1: have a, a, another a contemporary example. A um, PCA pastor was given the Kuiper Award by Princeton Seminary. Mm-hmm. You can name him.
0: It was Tim, Tim, it was Tim, Tim Keller.
1: Keller. Yep. And when the graduates and alumni of that school, the ministers in that denomination, uh, learned that he was PCA and the stands that he, the denomination, had taken, they clamored until the award was taken away. They Mm -hmm. said, this is not the gospel
0: as we know it. Yeah. I mean, they they effectively were labeling uh, Tim Keller as, as an apostate, as one who they cannot share fellowship with. Another example of a church
1: ironic. in our state that the pastor went to a PCUSA church and said, we're Presbyterian, can we rent space from you? Oh, yeah, you're Presbyterian, you can do that. They never bothered to ask what kind of Presbyterian, the pastor wisely he didn't say. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, a few months later, when the church found out that, uh, oh, this was a PCA church, they immediately did not renew the contract but put them out.
0: Yeah, well, I, th- I think... Um, there's tragedy um, all around, and we're going to move on to the next question here as uh, as we approach the end of our time together. This question comes from Daniel Lockridge. Hi, Daniel, and it's dealing with eschatology. He says, from an amillennial perspective, this question is in relation to Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, which say, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. People all over the world are being deceived by various heresies and idolatrous fables. Dr. Pipa, are we in the short time of Satan's release?
1: I, don't, I think we're not, Daniel. The uh, binding has been understood historically as the big shift from the covenant being uh, narrowly worked out in terms of Uh, the Jewish people, and now uh, God said to Christ, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. So the deception is on a much broader scale. Mm. Deceive the nations no longer. The nations belong to Christ, and as Christ wills, the gospel is entering those nations. Satan can still deceive, he still has power, but he no longer has power to hold the nations uh, in blindness. Uh, particularly as Christ is systematically uh, taking His kingdom into those nations.
0: Very good. I hope that answers your question, Daniel. <clears throat> Thank you, Doctor B. Virginia's
1: P. question. I don't see it on here.
0: Um, that might be on the other list. So we'll get we'll get that for next time. Unless you know it off the top of your head and you want to answer it.
1: No, you told me you got it. So okay. Yeah,
0: I'm sorry. Our next question comes from William Tejeda. It has to do with covenant justification and the federal vision. He asks, would you please explain the term covenant justification and the difference between it and the federal vision view when it comes to young children?
1: Well, you know, William, I don't know who really uses this term covenant justification. So if it's used, it's going to be used out of federal vision primarily. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know that I understand the term covenant justification.
0: I have Virginia's question, yeah.
1: Is um, <clears throat> if I'm understanding it, is that all those who are baptized and in the covenant are justified? Mm. So what Federal Vision teaches is that they're in union with Christ and have all the privileges that the elect have. Whether so, they can be, they could later apostatize. But because of their baptism, they're in the covenant, and they are justified. And that we reject outright. You can be in the covenant with Christ, legally and externally, and not have the saving benefits. You still have many benefits, but you do not have the saving benefits. And so until one is regenerated, uh, one cannot be justified. A child can be regenerated and be justified as that child grows then and develops the the faculties through which faith operates, the child believes on Christ. An older person, young person or adult is regenerated. They believe in Christ for their justification. <clears throat> so Federal Vision would say any child that's baptized has all the benefits that belong to anybody
0: in covenant with Christ. Including communion, communion. All of them. yeah. Union with
1: Christ, adoption, justification, sanctification, whatever they are. And so, only if they
0: apostatize, uh, then that's when they lose those benefits. Mm -hmm. I think that term covenant justification was quoted by Mark Jones recently. He was quoting out of a post-Reformation work. I'm not sure if it was Witsius or something else. I think it was on his Facebook page, but he has... We'll come back to it uh, later if we find out more about it. But William is listening live, and he messaged me just to say Mark Jones had used it. Um, And my answer to that was, in the context that Mark was quoting, it sounded an awful lot like um, John Brown of Womfrey's phrase, on a fair way to salvation for those who are in the visible church but not regenerate. So they have certain benefits from being in the visible church, namely the preaching of the word, that they sit under, but um, that doesn't mean that they are elect per se. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I don't think I'd use that term. Yeah. I, obviously Marx found it in some of the post-Reformation writers, but I, I, particularly in today's context, I'm not comfortable using that term.
0: Yeah, he was talking about the judgment of charity. <laughs> now, all right, I was going to go to the judgment. The judgment of charity
1: is that they're in the covenant, they're justified. Mm-hmm. So you make a credible profession of faith... And the church the elders receive you, they're giving you a charitable judgment. Uh, we're not making judgments about the heart. we can't we don't We can't read the heart. So with a child uh when that child is in the covenant, uh if they don't rebel against the covenant, then the judgment of charity is to receive them as making credible profession of faith. Mm-hmm. That's all that's meant. I still in today's climate would not use that term.
0: yeah. I think you're wise not to. I did find Virginia's question. Good. I'm sorry I didn't have it on the list. and I apologize, Virginia, for any scare if you're She's listening live. She's probably listening. Yeah, if you're listening live. But we do have your question. Dr. P., could you please explain any Bible text about musical instruments in the worship service? Is there any difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament's public worship on this subject What about some musical instruments that have pagan background or worldly history? Could it be acceptable or accepted by God during our corporate worship? Thank you, Virginia. Thanks,
1: Virginia. Hope you're well. Let me give a little history again. In the Roman Catholic, well, in the the temple, and David designed the musical instruments to be part of tabernacle and temple worship. We out
0: of time? No, you're good.
1: Okay, and uh, <clears throat> they accompanied the sacrifices. So in the Reformation, most of the reformers rejected the use of all musical instrumentation within corporate worship. That was part of the temple priesthood, and thus was fulfilled in Christ. So if you look at Calvin. Uh, say in Psalm 92 and some of the other psalms, I remember that one, um, that deal with musical instruments, Psalm 98. Uh, Calvin would write that uh, these were, are here to show us that we are to worship God uh, with affection and exuberance and joy from our hearts, but we no longer use musical instruments. And that was pretty much, again, the Reformation uh, position. Later on, uh, organs became uh, the instrument that was particularly outlawed in Reformed uh, churches, uh, actually, outlawed in the Roman Catholic Church for a long time as well. And I know Girardot, for example, wrote uh, very powerfully against the use of organs, but in passing, included uh, uh, piano in there as well. Mm -hmm. So today, in our Reformed churches, all who really hold the regular principle, we have three positions. And each group is convinced that their position is biblical. There are those who believe that uh, musical instruments that do not accompany singing are still allowed in the worship service. So playing a musical instrument during the offering or during uh, communion uh, would be uh, acceptable by the regular
0: principle of worship. According to this group, yeah. something like a solo, is that what you're talking about? Well,
1: no, I'm, I'm not going that far. I'm right. simply saying the pianist plays an offertory during the offering. I yeah. said that, or during communion. Yeah. That's all I've said. When I, the, nobody would agree with the other. <laughs> <laughs> then on the other extreme, there are those that think there should be no musical instruments uh, in the worship service. And then there are those of us in the middle that see now that, yes, the liturgical use as a worship element or in any way, uh, musical instruments should not be in the worship service. But as a circumstance of worship, to help us sing, Mm -hmm. they uh, are valid because a circumstance is not under direct revelation. In fact, it cannot be directly revealed. It has to be um, something consistent with the use in the culture and approved by the wisdom of the elders for the well-being of the congregation. So hymn books, microphones, all kinds of other things that we use to help us worship. The piano would come into or the musical instrument would come into that category, so I treat the musical instrument as a circumstance of worship, which means that after the call to worship and before the benediction, I teach there should be no non-lyrical musical instrumentation. That music, an instrument, should only be used to help us sing as a congregation. As a congregation. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not even going off the direction where Zach wants to go, talking about special music. Again, you've got those who believe that choirs are part of the regular principle, and those of us that think they're not, that the priesthood of believers, the congregation, is uh, is the choir. But it's important to note when we have these discussions that all of us are beginning. We treat each other with respect. We all believe that the Bible is requiring what we do. There are those that don't care, but in our discussions, this is how we want to respond. Now, the other part of your question is what instruments? Mm -hmm. Well, in discussing the matter of circumstances, the older writers said that the thing should be used according to its use in the general culture. So, in our culture, the instrument that's primarily used to accompany singing is the piano. Virginia, in your culture, the churches where I'm often preaching, the guitar. Either instrument meets the purpose of helping the congregation to stay on pitch and to keep to the rhythm of the tune. And so it depends on the culture in terms of the instrument. Now, in terms of pagan background, only if the instrument um, it was something that was so closely connected to idolatry that you couldn't, uh you couldn't d- divorce it from that. But I I would say it's more in terms of what the instrument does. An instrument for jazz is not an appropriate instrument for worship. It's not because it's pagan, simply because its musical use is very different from accompanying singing. We want things that lend themselves to accompany Mm -hmm. it. That's Mm -hmm. why we don't need to use percussion. Percussion does not lend itself, and it does uh, stir up wrong kinds of emotions. So in the same way that eventually bagpipes were outlawed from battle, because of the emotions they stirred up. There are musical instruments, jazz instruments, percussion, things like that, that simply are not wise, are not appropriate to use in worship.
0: And I have a history, and um, Dr. Piper knows this. When I first became a Christian, I was immediately recruited into the praise team of my church, and I played guitar. And in a lot of ways, that fellowship was very good. But as I... Got more involved in reformed churches where i saw them trying and to reach beyond their resources to incorporate praise teams and such it is so difficult it is much more difficult than incorporating a piano to do that well and whatever you do if you're not able to do it well then it's safer to not do it and by that i mean if you're going to do it in a distracting fashion and frequently drums as much as i love them and all my best friends are drummers as much as i love drums they they are very easy to become a distraction. Very difficult to uh to actually facilitate worship well. Um but that's that's our two cents there. Dr. P did you want to talk about your trip to what Nigeria? Is it? Um it has been a little bit less than an hour since we started. So we got started a it was little bit late. 510. It's past five ten, but we didn't start what at four ten. It's five seventeen.
1: Oh, we started before four seventeen.
0: Oh yeah? Okay. Yeah.
1: I do want to talk about Nigeria. May we start that next month?
0: We could, yeah.
1: And folks, pay attention to the... Uh, it's in the newsletter. In the newsletter and to my Facebook uh, uh, account. There's pictures and text there as well. But just quickly, we just got. I just got back from Nigeria <clears throat> where I preached uh, in a church that's part of the denomination called the NKST. We have a student here right now from that denomination as well. Mm-hmm but a man I've worked with there for years. And it's in the state of Benway, which is, quote, a Christian state. It's in the Christian part of of Nigeria, the Muslim parts in the north. There are Muslims that live in the south and the Christians live in the north, but the states are predominantly... And the state of Benway is a a, a large, (coughs) predominantly Teve tribe, which is also a predominantly Christian tribe, which opens up a lot of things for me. Mm -hmm. I did three... I taped three radio programs on three different stations. I taped a television uh, program. This goes to hundreds of thousands of people. I preached in Auntie F's church, four messages. I baptized 20 children, babies, uh, served the Lord's Supper to 1,100 people. <clears throat> but there's other things I'd like to talk about, how our listeners could actually be involved with that work, so we can pick back that up next
0: week. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing chronicle if you're able to check <clears throat> it out online. Um, that concludes our questions for this edition, and we're out of time. A thank you for tuning in, those of you who tuned in live, and thank you for listening, those of you who are listening to the recording. Please check in next month for our May edition, and in the meantime, be praying for the nine men who will be graduating from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary this spring. Um, Eight of them are intending to go into the ordained ministry as preachers One of them is hoping to go into full-time service as a Christian school teacher And they all um, need your prayers And thank God for calling men to go out into His harvest We're going to go
1: to the second Tuesday now
0: Yep, the second Tuesday of May I don't have the date in front of me But there will be announcements through Twitter and Facebook and, And other means Thank you for tuning in And until next time, God bless.